All right, I've already told you that we're looking at Psalm 80, and so if you have a Bible with you, please turn to probably somewhere around the middle of your Bible, and we're going to read all 19 verses and see what it has to teach us. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. Let's pray. Father, your word is sharper than any two-edged sword and more powerful Uh, than the mightiest man. We bow before you because your word uh, shakes the heavens. And when it comes into our presence, we are reminded that you are God and we are not. Help us, Lord, as frail creatures, but your creatures, your beloved children, be able to hear what you have to teach us in Psalm 80 this morning. And so we ask for your blessing and for your spirit to rest upon us Again, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to believe. We pray these things through the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Sometime back in 2019, um, things started to go bad for our family in so many ways. Like we had trial after trial after trial that happened to us. And after it got to be like a really long list, I started to write it down. And then it continued to grow. 
And so I took it to Pastor Larry and said, can you pray for us? This is, this is what we're going through right now. And it was stuff that was happening to our family. It was stuff that happened to me. It was stuff that happened to extended family. It was stuff that was happening um, all around. Any, any, any part of the circle of influence that, that touched us, it was, it was affecting. And he looked at it and he said, brother, I think you're under spiritual attack. And I went, I thought I was the one who had the background in charismatic church. <laughs> and he said, no, really, let's pray about this. And so the list continued to grow and I continued to share it with him. And then coronavirus happened, and we just forgot about the list. I don't even know where it is now. But things got worse and worse and worse. Oh, sometimes life is like that. Have you ever wondered why life can sometimes ravage you? Maybe you've talked to God about it. Maybe you've said something like, God, you've been so good to us in the past. You promised to bless, and you did. And you promised to build your church, and you did. And you promised to give shalom to this body, this church. And in so many ways, you did. And looking back on those years, I kind of see them as like the golden age. Long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Why does it seem, God, though, that you're frowning upon us now? Why does it feel like in these days, your kingdom, and not just here in this church, but but all over the world, is being ravaged. God, when will you smile upon us again? Psalm 80 gives us a wonderful lesson for us to be able to answer those particular questions. In light of God's past acts of delivering his people, we're going to see that it's right to bitterly lament when his kingdom feels ravaged and to plead for deliverance in our suffering, and to pray that he will shine on us again, reviving our souls, restoring favor, and tending our flock. And it's going to urge us to call upon the Lord God Almighty for salvation. Before we get started into the three points, I wanted to give us again a little bit of background, and I feel like I always have to do that because it's weird how we flip back and forth between Hebrews and Psalms, Hebrews and Psalms, Hebrews and Psalms every week. Well, I'm the Psalms guy, and Steve Hollage is the Hebrews guy, and we're trying to connect them as best we can, but I know how it is. I remember every sermon I preached, and you, you won't remember what I said tomorrow. But right now, in this place, I hope that God will speak to you and change you in your seats. Book three of the Psalter, which is where we're at right now, might be called the Book of Exile. Psalm 80, which is a focal messianic psalm, is basically in the middle of book three of the Psalter. And even more precise, Psalm 80 is the exact middle of the whole Bible. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, the whole Psalter. Uh, the, the Hebrew Masoretes, the, the scribes that, that meticulously copied the, the Old Testament, over the word forest um, in verse 13, uh, the middle letter, the middle consonant is raised on the line, and that's to indicate that this is the middle letter of the Psalter. We are at the exact middle of the book of Psalms. Exile, I think, is the the thematic middle of what I call a U-shaped curve, okay, of kingdom living. Because in God's kingdom living, it seems like very often it starts out well enough, right? With strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, as we sing. But then in the middle somewhere, God's people 
throughout the ages can testify that pain and sorrow and hardship and heartache and even agony become a part of kingdom living. If you've lived long enough in the church, you know what I'm talking about. Exile is at the very bottom of that U-shaped curve. And it doesn't get much lower than God ravaging his kingdom. It's an all-too-familiar place that's characterized by sin, by punishment, by horror, and by even tears. Sometimes your personal life feels ravaged. Uh, and you find comfort, usually in the encouragement of friends and, uh, and family members who are presently not doing so bad, and so they're able to encourage you and to pick you up. But sometimes, everything about your life feels ravaged. Doesn't it? I mean, sometimes our church family feels ravaged. Psalm 80 helps us all to make sense of those ravaged feelings, our ravaged circumstances, and our groping in the dark for God's elusive smile to restore us again. And so as I've broken up this psalm, we're going to look at it from three particular points, okay? And here they are. Tearful laments, tortured prayers, and timely restorations. So if you're a note taker, now's the time to do it. Tearful laments, tortured prayers, and timely restorations. Now there are two tearful laments that I find in this passage. Uh, the first one is, oh, where is our shepherd? And the second is, oh, where is our vine dresser? With a big question mark. Ah! Asaph the psalmist, who's the one who, um, who writes the psalm, or maybe it's uh, someone in his tradition, an Asaphite, uh, cries out to God who is the shepherd of Israel. Now, in the Bible's view, God's sitting on his throne in heaven, um, but his footstool, the place where he, when he puts his, his metaphorical feet, if you will, is the Ark of the Covenant, which rests in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, if you will. And in the old King James, remember how it calls uh, a part of the Ark the mercy seat? That's the lid upon which God would put his feet, his footstool. And on that lid, Moses had uh, the craftsmen of Israel, back during the Exodus, uh, carve with exquisite beauty and glory, golden cherubim, cherubs. One way to, to make a Hebrew world plural is to add an ayim. That's what cherubim is. It's, it's, it's more than one cherub. And their wings overshadowed the ark, much like when the seraphs fly around the throne of God in heaven and they cover their eyes and they cover their hands and they cover their feet and they say, holy, 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 constantly. It's a way for us to see that this is a holy place. This is where God dwells. Now, in another sense, God was not really there because according to the psalmist, at least, he wasn't awake. That doesn't mean like what Elijah said, that, that God is sleeping and he needs to wake up and, and come back from uh, the lavatory or wherever he's at. But from the, the point of view of Asaph and the psalmist, it's that God is not awake because he's not really asleep, but he's not being attentive to the tender care that we as God's people are crying out that he would give us some relief from our pain. So the psalmist says, I can see what's happening here. It's time to call on the name of the Lord. It's time to call on, Israel, on God who is Israel's shepherd. And remember, a shepherd is not just someone who's four years old in a nativity play and puts on a sheet <laughs> and holds a little staff and we all take pictures and say he's cute. The shepherd is the one who leads and guides his people to 
to uh, distill waters into green pasture, but also has the, the crook of his staff to, to ward off enemies. And so it's time to call on God as their shepherd, as their divine warrior, as the God of hosts. That means the God of armies who fights for his people when he stirs up his strength to save. In other words, when God girds up his loins. That's when the shepherd of Israel really does step into his glory, when he shines forth, when his glory is apparent. However, Israel has a serious problem here. Okay, I want you to see it. God is angry with their prayers. Now, what does that imply? I think it's telling us that the people have sinned, not just the kinds of sins that we think that we can just kind of confess and, and they're gone because they're respectable and because we didn't really mean to do it and it was kind of accidental. No, this is different. Israel has sinned repeatedly, greatly, and flagrantly by turning away from the Lord, turned their face away from the Lord. And now that they're in trouble and they're crying out in their, their foxhole kind of prayers, God's just offended. He's angry at it. And he's becoming an angrier and angrier because there's not really any repentance there. There's just a prayer to make it all go away. Can you imagine here? Can you see that the psalmist is being a realist? We, we all know um, folks who pray this way and we all recognize in our worst moments when we pray this way too. Can you see what he saw? That God has responded unfavorably with a frown by making his people become a stench in their neighbor's nostrils, an obstacle to be removed, and a laughingstock among the watching nations. So Israel cries here of, oh, where is our shepherd, are all flowing from this, this arresting image of a tearful lament. Uh, their prayer is turning from help to woe is me. Uh, here's, here's what's happening. You ever gone through a time when you cry, and you cry, and you cry. And it doesn't seem to stop. You've got your list from 2019, and it just doesn't let up. And maybe you do it in front of your church family, or maybe you go into your prayer closet, but you're just full of tears. And I'm not going to put on a show for you and act, but you know what I mean. I mean, you're wiping them away. And you just feel dry and poured out like a drink offering. Okay? And then you wring it out. These are all your tears. That's what the psalm actually says is happening. It's a, it's a bucket full. <laughs> That's the word it's saying there for, for a full measure. It's a Hebrew word that means a third. It's a specific container. So it's like a bucket full of tears. And you're crying all this? I did it on purpose. And God says... This is your food. Drink it up. (sighs) Yeah, the Bible actually teaches that. Sometimes our tears are so full and so agonizing, and they flow and they flow and they flow, and God turns around and says, here's the way I'm going to feed you as your shepherd. I'm not going to lead you to the still waters and the green pastures, but I'm going to lead you to the bread and the food of your own tears. It's kind of a vicious cycle where you cry and you cry and you cry and then you eat some of that tears and then again, God sits, he serves it back to you and you cry some more because there's no relief and it's a vicious cycle and you don't feel like it's ever going to end. 
It's horrible. It's awful. I think we all know what that feels like. These tearful laments are not limited, though, to the psalmist's cry to his shepherd. It's also a cry for where is our vine dresser? He also cries out, where, O God, are you, our vine dresser? And in verses 8 through 13, Asaph recounts Israel's rags to riches history. Okay, back when the people were slaves in Egypt, um, in the land of, of Egypt, in the land, uh, moving to the land of Canaan where God planted them, he moved Jacob's family um, all around. You remember the story. So 70 people in the, in the land of Canaan and there's a famine in the land and Israel's sons, Joseph's brothers, despise him and sell him off into slavery cast them into a pit before that, but then they see the Midianite traders come on, and they say, we'll, we'll get rid of him, and we'll make some money on this. And so they, they sell him away, and they pretend that he's dead, and they convince their dad that he is, and the tears, tears flow. Okay? And then years later, God uses Joseph in the dungeon that he was cast into to rise to the right-hand place in all of Egypt next to Pharaoh. And then in God's mysterious ways, his family arrives to buy food, and eventually, Joseph sees that there's repentance there, and they're restored in a relationship, and God means it for the saving of many lives. And then after 400 plus years, God takes that small group of people, that 70 people or so, that grow into a mighty nation, and plucks that vine out of Egypt, comes over to the land of Canaan, the land of promise, clears the land, plants it back in, and it flourishes and it grows, and it spreads everywhere. What does the Bible say? To the heights of the mountains, so that its shade is casting a shadow on the highest peaks, and to the, the, the extent of the sea and the, and the river, we saw that last time, to the Mediterranean Sea, and to the Euphrates River, to the, the furthest boundaries of where Israel is to extend, where God has given them the land, where he has given his chosen, special people, that they might flourish and be blessed. And now, the psalmist cries, but look what happened. Our, our walls, our protection, that, that, that wall in your vineyard have been broken down. And the nations come by and they just pluck whatever they want from it. It doesn't say pluck its fruit, that's implied. It says they, they pluck it. And then after they're gone, and from what's left, then the wild animals and the swarming locusts, they all come in and they just ravage the rest. It's all gone. And the psalmist says, my list is like 150 million things long now, God. And there's no end in sight. Where are you? What are you doing here? Why have you turned your face from us? Why does it feel like you're ravaging your kingdom? Why? Why? And then God reminds us that most of us know what this feels like. Your personal life can feel ravaged, I think, when your health takes a dive or when you lose a job and your career is in tatters or when a loved one in your family or your friends dies. Many of you know what that feels like when it happens in your church. Your little patch of God's kingdom is ravaged. If you've been in church for many years, you've seen the cycles of uncertainty, of tears, of pruning, of brokenness, and maybe even, God forbid, a scandal that ravages the body of Christ. And it doesn't feel good, does it? Not at all. It feels awful. It feels like your life is being pulled apart. 
It feels like God is shaking us up in ways that we didn't ask or deserve for. Like you've fallen and you can't get up. Because, again, I'm looking at the the psalm, Psalm 80. Israel says, because some people, some people out there are keeping us down. But God seems asleep. And you cry and you cry and you cry some more until you feel poured out like a drink offering before God. It's a tortured state of soul. And from that state, brothers and sisters, that's where our prayers rise up. And they're not the kind of prayers that, that um, are respectable, in a sense. I call them our tortured prayers. Here are the two that I find here. In verses 14 and 16, turn again and see what has happened to us. That's the first tortured prayer. And the second is, give us life in your name so that we may not turn it back again from you. Let's look at the first one. Even when you feel like your life and your church are being ravaged, the best thing to do is to turn to God in prayer. And you say, I know that. Tell me something I don't know. We're getting to that. But even if your prayers are painful and tortured, I want you to see that the Bible gives you permission to express those raw emotions. Listen to how raw the the Psalms here are. Turn again, God. You might say something like this. God, it feels like you've turned your back on us, like you're so far away from us that you can't even see what happened. So please look down from heaven. You're way up there. We're way down here. And please smile upon us again. You even have permission, according to Psalm 80, to be graphic about what has happened to you and to us. It might sound something like this. Those who oppose us, you have no, they have no regard for us. It feels like we're burned with fire and cut down. Turn your face against them in a rebuke so they perish. That's verse 16. How might that sound in your own words if you, if you riff on it like I did in Philippians chapter 2? Maybe it sounds like, God, it feels like we've been burned and our hopes have been cut short. If you're pruning us, I, I know that that's supposed to be good. Um, it sure feels more like ravaging. So please turn your pruning shears on those who are happy with our suffering and cut them off. Do you ever pray like that? I think for most Christians, uh, prayers like that, they kind of get stuck in our throats. We, we feel like praying them, but we, we go, wait a minute, how did Jesus teach us to pray? Oh, no, I've got to love my enemies as myself. I have to pray for those who persecute me that you would bless them and to not curse anyone, um, that vengeance would be up to the Lord. And yes, yes, a thousand times yes and amen. Jesus taught us how to pray with holy instruction in prayer. But I want us to notice that Psalm 80 is legitimizing tortured prayers when they are honest, when they are offered in humility to God alone, and when they put the results in God's hands. That's what we find here. So by all means, by all means, pray as Jesus instructed us. But don't be afraid to offer up your tortured prayers like Psalm 80 does. And keep in mind that when Jesus learned the Psalter as a young boy, he sang Psalm 80 just like we did this morning. And then there's another tortured prayer. Give us life in your name so we will not turn back from you. And this addresses a a real big dilemma in the room. And all of us, I think, feel it. Do you sense it? The such tortured prayers put us in this uh, this horns of a dilemma? It's one thing for sinless, perfect, holy Jesus to pray uh, to God the Father out of his innocent agony. We, We get that. But it's quite another thing for sinful people like you and me to cry out a tortured kind of us versus them prayer 
that's a problem. <laughs> that's a recipe for becoming a Pharisee in 30 seconds. But look at verse 18. Look at verse 18 for the way to escape this dilemma. There is no way you, me, or any other fallen person can withstand God ravaging his kingdom unless God makes the first move. And what is that move? That he gives us life. That he revives us. What's that look like? He gives us a new heart. A heart that beats like Jesus' heart. A heart that loves the things he loves and loves the people who he loves. For anyone who's suffering the ravages of the kingdom, for any church that is weighed down by the same, the only way out of the grave of despair is new life. God must revive you. You must be born again. You must experience that God-given resurrection of life that shows, in fact, that you do have that new heart. With God, remakes you anew and that you'll not turn back from him. That's what, that's what a new heart does, by the way. It will, without hesitation, turn to God in repentance and faith. Every time. Repentance for all the ways that we own the punishments that we deserve for the ways that we've broken God's heart. And faith by putting our arms around God and believe him and trust him as the one who turns back and restores and smiles and saves. Now, beloved, if God is stirring your heart right now, like right in your seat as we speak, if you find yourself tearfully lamenting the ravages of the kingdom, if you have noticed your tortured thoughts are transforming right before your eyes right now into prayers for God to turn and save you from being ravaged like that, then this is what you need to do. You need to repeat verse 18, in a sense, back to God in prayer. You need to riff on it and put it in your own words. Be honest and raw with your tortured emotions as you need to be. How do you do that? Again, it might sound something like this. Oh God, give me life. Give us life as a church. Revive us, God. Grant us new hearts that beat for you and no one else. God, I need your Holy Spirit to do CPR on my weeping, tortured soul. Breathe new life into me. Breathe your life into me. Make me a new person so I'm more and more like you. Give me the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Turn my cold, stony heart into a heart flowing with the lifeblood of Jesus, our Lord. Give us life that we all together may love you more and more every day, that we might love our neighbor even as I care for myself, and that the cross will control every aspect of my thought, word, and deed. Answer my plea, O God, and then you and then your church, us together, will call upon your name like we mean it this time, and we shall not turn back from you. I think if we pray like that, like we really mean it and not just performative. Um, not so much with those exact words, but you know what I mean, the sentiment. Then you're on your way to restoration. That's God's promise in Psalm 80. That brings us to our timely restorations. So often such restorations from God, I've noticed, <laughs> and I have stories to tell if you, if you want to ask me afterward, they come just in the nick of time. 
don't they? When, when you think that Pharaoh's armies are right upon you, all of a sudden, the pillar of cloud separates you and them by a hair's breadth. And then Moses strikes his staff down into the sand and the sea parts and it opens up and there's a way of salvation just in the nick of time. Because at least as it appears to us, I think God's favor only gradually turns toward his people. It starts when the shepherd king of Israel, we saw this in the first couple of verses, gives ears to the cries of his sheep. And then he rouses himself from his throne and his glory shines forth in blinding light And then he stands up to stir up his might and comes to us in salvation by fighting all his and our enemies. We're uh, channeling the the shorter catechism language there. He responds to our cries that rise to a crescendo, and I'll show you this in a moment, of this psalm's refrain that builds to a climax. I tried to to, to read it in a way that you would notice. Verse 3, restore us, O God. Verse 7, restore us, O God of hosts. The God of hosts the heavenly armies of angels, of cherubim, of seraphim, and every other created spiritual being that serves the living God. And then verse 19, restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. You see how it builds on itself? There's a rising confidence in the psalmist's prayers that God indeed will hear us. When this God comes to restore his people who cry tearful laments and offer tortured prayers, He lets his face shine brighter than the glory of anything else in all of creation. The light of his countenance morphs from a stern frown, thank God, to a warm smile. It does. If you don't yet feel his smile upon your laments and your prayers, people of God, just wait. Be patient. Because his restorations are gradual, but they're orchestrated with perfect timing. But you ask, how? How? Show me from from the Bible how that happens. I know it does happen, but then when I look back, I, I really can't kind of put it together. I can't piece it together. I can't figure out how God did it. Psalm 80 has the answer. And it has an answer that you're going to think that as soon as I mention it, you're going to go, oh, 32 minutes. That's the end of the sermon. Tied up in a little bow. But we're not going to stop there. You know why? Because Jesus is the answer, but it's not until we see how he is the answer that his glory shines forth. How will God bring about his timely restoration? How will God turn back to his people to let his face shine upon them and save them? Verses 15 and 17. Through his right-hand man. Or more specifically, the man of your right hand, the son of man, who is strong for God. Now, like I said, of course, you've already guessed it. Who's that man? In the Old Testament, they say, I don't know, but I'm looking forward to it. In the New Testament, New Testament era, we go, that's Jesus. Right? But lest we leave it at that, we need to see how Psalms, Psalm 80's amazing details show us how Jesus saves. Because once you understand you'll gain potent spiritual resources for weathering God's storms that ravage his kingdom. Okay, let me explain. Psalm 79 and Psalm 80, okay? We didn't look at Psalm 79, but you can go back home and read it. Don't do it now. They're kind of like fraternal twins, okay? They both are very, very similar, and they're put together for a purpose so that we can see that the main themes of Israel crying out in exile 
and crying out for God to restore them um, will eventually happen when God turns and saves his people, okay? That's the similarities. But there's also striking differences, okay? In Psalm 79, it's very clear that the southern kingdom of Judah is the one who's being referred to. And so you have references to the temple, you have references to Jerusalem, okay? Now, in Psalm 80, it's the northern kingdom who is crying out. And that's why we have those references all together of Joseph, of Ephraim, of Manasseh, of Benjamin. And you say, so what? Where are you going with this? Here's what you don't know. There is now a long-forgotten but well-attested tradition in ancient Israel that there were two messiahs that were coming to save, one for Judah and one for Israel. And you say, oh, you've crossed the line. This is just weird now, okay? <laughs> I got this from O. Palmer Robertson's book on the Psalms. He wrote the textbook, Christ of the Covenants, for Reformed seminaries, okay? So this is not out of left field, okay? The ancient, faithful, chastised Israelites who lived north in the northern kingdom recognized that there was this mysterious character who was written about in certain passages and scriptures who would come to save, come to be a Messiah. And they called him Messiah ben Joseph, or Messiah the son of Joseph. Sometimes he's called Messiah son of Ephraim. You can look it up on the internet, okay? You can read the articles. And this mysterious particular Messiah would arise from the Rachel tribes, because remember Joseph and and Benjamin were both the two kids born to, to Jacob's beloved son, Rachel. And Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and his father, Jacob, who was renamed Israel, adopted Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, as his own. And so they fill out the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, I'm giving you the little Old Testament history lesson. You've got to go back to Genesis 50 for this, 49 and 50. There was this hope that there was a Messiah that would come out of Israel that would be in the likeness of the people of Joseph, people associated with Joseph. And here we have in, Genesis, in, in Psalm 80, verses 15 and 17, this mysterious reference to this son of the right hand or the son of man. Now, you remember when Rachel died giving childbirth to her last son, she named him Ben-Oni, which means son of my sorrow. Benjamin was born. And of course, after she dies and and uh, Jacob buries his beloved wife. He renames that son Benjamin, son of my strength or son of my right hand. So there's this notion that in the northern kingdom of Israel, there will come a Messiah who will be in the likeness of Joseph who will come and save us. Now, brothers and sisters, what does that tell us? What is the shape of Joseph's life? We know that the son of David is going to be the one who rises out of the tribe of Judah and will arise to be king of kings and lord of lords. And we get that. We call Jesus the son of David all the time because that's one of the primary ways that he's talked about in the scriptures. But how is the shape of Joseph's life inform us about what kind of Messiah will come? Well, the New Testament tells us that it's not going to be two Messiahs, but those two hopes are merged into one man, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is so much like Joseph. He's one who's rejected by his brothers, who's cast into a pit, 
who's sold in a sense into exile, who is, who is uh, gone down, thrown to a dungeon, and then at God's perfect timing is raised up to be at the right hand of the powers so that he is Lord of the nations. And so when you have these two pictures, the son of David and the son of Joseph, Messiah ben David and Messiah ben Joseph, put together in one man, it helps us to understand more fully the kind of redeemer king that we have. It's one who has suffered the ravages of the kingdom and came out stronger. At the very beginning of the sermon, you remember I mentioned about how there's kind of a U-shaped curve to the Psalter, and at the very bottom is where exile is? Let me suggest to you that Jesus transforms that U-shaped curve into a J-shaped curve. Why? Because when you reach the bottom and you make it back to the top, you don't stop at the same level where things started to go bad, but you keep on going to the heights of glory because that's where Jesus went. (laughs) That's the shape of Jesus' life. That was the shape of Joseph's life. And so when we look at Jesus as the son of Joseph, we see him as the one who's taken the J-shaped curve, if you will, and he has adopted it as his own and transformed it and fulfilled it. Now, let, let me try to wrap this up for us. How do you now see the hope of glory of Jesus in a new way? Well, he's God's right-hand man, the Savior who redeems the kingdom ravages we endure by blazing the path of the J-shaped curve of kingdom living. Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph, if you will, and maybe it's a coincidence, maybe not, that Mary's husband was Joseph. Jesus, the son of Joseph, can help you make sense of the ravages of your personal life and of our church life together because he offers the J-shaped curve as a way to make sense of your life trajectory as a Christian so you can endure those bucketful of tears that God occasionally feeds to you. Do you see? So you can pray honestly with raw emotion from your tortured soul. So you can take the scriptures like Psalm 90 on your lips and speak them back to God. So you can give your tears and your fears to Jesus, who alone understands and sympathizes and saves. So let's give thanks that in Jesus, although your life may may feel like it's ravaged from time to time as you live as citizens in God's kingdom, the Jesus-shaped life has a certain trajectory that always leads upward to glory. Always. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we know in so many ways that, that Jesus is the answer. But really, just as important is the question. <laughs> if Jesus is the answer, what is the question? And the question we see from Psalm 80 is that Jesus is the answer to our U-shaped curve that ought to be transformed into a J-shaped curve, the Jesus-shaped curve that is uh, conformed uh, to suffering and death and crucifixion, but turns at the bottom of the exile trough to resurrection, to hope, to ascension, and to your smile upon us. So Lord, as we consider the ravages of your kingdom in our personal life, in our church, and all the ways that we feel uh, beat up and, and turned away from, help us, Lord, to see that we can call on, in a sense, 
Jesus ben Joseph, the one who understands, who sympathizes, and who saves. Help us, Lord, to put our trust in him for all the ways that he saves us. Amen and amen.